O'Reilly had a knack for bending time to her whim, a feat that manifested in her consistently delayed arrivals. This oddity, a peculiar dance with time, was something I'd grown familiar with in the fleeting weeks of our acquaintance. When we had a mission in the offing, one could bet their bottom dollar O'Reilly would stroll onto the scene tardy, as if the cosmic rhythm of the universe was in sync with her internal clock, and not the other way around. The latest episode of her chronic lateness was playing out, as usual, on a nondescript night in front of an ostentatiously upscale hotel. Seated behind the wheel of our nondescript vehicle, I found my fingers orchestrating a familiar staccato on the steering wheel, my eyes ping-ponging between the grandiose entrance of the hotel and the numerals on my dashboard clock, taunting me. She was running a cool twenty minutes behind schedule, and I knew, with the certainty of a man long resigned to his fate, that she would make her entrance any moment now. With the consistency of an ancient prophecy, O'Reilly invariably emerged from the revolving doors of the posh hotel our employer deemed fit for her residency, balancing a cup of the darkest brew in one hand and a coal-black briefcase in the other. All without so much as a greeting, she would climb into the passenger seat next to me, fussing over her disheveled ponytail of dirty blonde locks, breathing heavy with indignation as though her lateness was somehow my transgression. And should I dare to point out her tardiness, the aftermath was nothing short of apocalyptic. I had learned that lesson the hard way on the very first night of our odd alliance. For all her quirks, though, I harbored a strange fondness for O'Reilly. We were oddly compatible in our professional endeavors. Granted, she hardly respected my time or valued my camaraderie, but she was indisputably stellar when it came to executing the job itself. Also, let's not overlook the fact that she was a woman of remarkable allure, a temptation I consciously sidestepped unwilling to mix business with pleasure. As if responding to an invisible cue, O'Reilly burst through the grand doors of the hotel, sashaying her way across the deserted street to our parked vehicle, a sight I viewed through dimmed headlights. The ensemble was unvaryingly the same, the dark briefcase, the messy ponytail, and this time, an extra cup of the deep roasted brew in her hand. She juggled her coffee and briefcase with seasoned ease, sliding into the passenger seat next to me, Without so much as a syllable, she thrust the steaming cup of coffee my way. Oh, uh, thanks, I stuttered, taken aback by this unprecedented gesture. It felt strangely out of character for a woman as frosty as O'Reilly. She continued her silence, turning her attention to the ebony briefcase, her fingers rifling through the documents it held. Papers that held the key to our latest assignment, the information, the details, the contract of death. I had come to suspect that O'Reilly was not her birth name, but a pseudonym, just as Harrington, the alias I had given her, was not mine. In our profession, anonymity was not just preferred, it was a necessary precaution. As for the subjects of our grim tasks, the less one knew about them, the better. It helped me sleep at night, knowing that the details of their lives and the reasons behind their impending demise were veiled to me. After an eternity of waiting, O'Reilly finally extended her hand towards me, the manila envelope that held the bare minimum information I needed to recognize my next target. The profession of an assassin was not one I had pursued consciously. It had found me at a time when I was drowning in alcohol and debt, backed into a corner where the only choices I had were to kill or be killed. When tested by such desperate circumstances, you discover unknown depths within yourself. I did.
and so began my stint in this dark underworld. My proficiency at eliminating targets had eventually attracted the attention of men like our current employer, wealthy and powerful individuals with no regard for human life. O'Reilly was similarly skilled, just as steely, but lacking any perverse pleasure in the act of killing. It was just a job to her, as it was to me. We were a good pair, in this sinister ballet of life and death. Accepting the proffered coffee with a mumbled word of thanks, I took a sip. It was too hot, too dark for my liking, but the bitter taste was a welcomed distraction. O'Reilly finally found her voice, laying down the specifics of our job. The Mark lived in a dilapidated Victorian house on the outskirts of Vernon, a nondescript town roughly 45 miles outside the city. She adjusted her glasses with an offhand flick, handing me the envelope that carried the details. Two targets, she said, breaking off to take a gulp of her coffee. One's an elderly woman, the other. Her voice trailed off, leaving the sentence hanging in the quiet of the car. As I shifted my gaze to the black and white snapshots enclosed within the envelope, the first revealed an older, affluent woman, donned in an ostentatious dress and embellished with a pearl necklace worthy of killing for, the photo captured her grinning ecstatically at some upscale event. She didn't strike me as the most harmless victim on my list, but then again, overthinking was futile. This was a name on Detley's list, and that was enough to seal her fate. Next, I peeked at the second photo and felt my world freeze over. For the first time in what felt like an eternity, I was genuinely taken aback. The photo was of a young boy, around four or five, gleefully hugging an antique robot toy, with a grand Christmas tree filling up the background. I looked up at O'Reilly, my face contorted in disbelief, as she nonchalantly sipped her coffee. This is the assignment, she stated, her tone void of any emotion, answering the silent questions etched on my face. When you work for someone like Detley, you're bound to encounter unsavory jobs. It won't always be a gambler or a gangster. She knew I understood this, just like she knew how I had executed a suburban mother while her children slept unaware in their rooms above. Even before Detley, it's not like I maintained any illusions about my moral compass. I was very much aware of who I was and what I had done. But a child? An innocent, defenseless kid? I needed time to think, to process, to perhaps turn down this assignment. But we both knew that's not how it worked in our line of business. O'Reilly had been with Detley longer, and she understood that they had waited to see if I was really as cold as they wanted me to be before throwing a task like this at me. Our merciless boss, Detley, did not entertain doubts or second thoughts. The moment I had parked my car outside that hotel to wait for O'Reilly, I had agreed to kill whomever was inside that envelope. I think we make a good pair, Harrington, O'Reilly broke the heavy silence. Mr. Detley likes you. He trusts you. Jobs like this, they only go to those he trusts. She focused on the road ahead, not once making eye contact. The job is what it is. The kid should be in an upstairs bedroom. The old woman watches TV in a den all night. Let's go. I nodded in agreement. She was trying to make this easier for me, make me feel that this was just another task, another day at work. All I had to do was treat it as just that, a job, a responsibility. My gaze lingered on the photograph of the smiling boy as I closed the envelope and set the car in motion. The drive was uneventful. An hour passed, and we were just minutes away from our destination. The Victorian mansion, as per O'Reilly's brief, was isolated and surrounded by vast empty fields, 
a fitting place for an execution. I spent the majority of the drive in deep thought. We seldom indulged in small talk on our journeys, but this drive felt different. The usual professional distance was replaced by a palpable tension. The thought of the boy and his grandmother plagued my mind, a stark contrast to my usual indifference towards my targets. The more I dwelled on the boy's image, the more unusual it seemed. The pictures O'Reilly handed me were always in black and white, but this specific image felt vintage, like it had been captured several years ago. It could have been the retro robot toy the boy was holding that made me suspicious. O'Reilly, I cleared my throat as I addressed her. She turned her attention towards me, her gaze meeting mine. Doesn't something about this, about the kid's photo, seem a bit... odd? I asked, raising an eyebrow. I was not one to question orders, to cause problems. I was known for my reliability, my professionalism, but a nagging feeling inside me insisted that if there was ever a time to voice my concerns, it was now. I hoped that the rapport we had built over the months would persuade her to at least consider my point of view. O'Reilly's silence was her own way of allowing me to elaborate. With a slightly raised brow and a probing gaze, she waited. Don't you find it odd, O'Reilly? The age of the photograph, I mean. It gives off an aura of a bygone era. When we arrive, will there be a child of the same age as in this picture? And another thing, what's the rationale behind a child and his presumably elderly guardian living in such a dilapidated mansion? A flicker of confusion flashed across O'Reilly's usually stoic face as she retrieved the photograph of the boy from the manila envelope, inspecting it once again. Seizing the moment of her momentary uncertainty, I pressed on. O'Reilly wore an expression of mild annoyance as she responded, Taggart, it could be from a vintage-themed Christmas photo shoot for all we know. Mr. Detley would never mislead his employees about an assignment. I understand that this task is tough, but don't complicate things and make me doubt your abilities. Silenced by her firm words, I accepted that perhaps it was my own internal struggle making me question things. As we resumed our silent journey, the deserted countryside passed us by, eventually replaced by the foreboding silhouette of a towering, gnarled mansion, its eerie grandeur vaguely lit in the pale winter midnight. After a nod of agreement, we parked our SUV alongside a solitary well amidst tall grasses and readied ourselves. Emerging from our vehicle, we gathered our tools, a few handguns, some knives, a shotgun, nothing overly complex. Excessive firepower was unnecessary for such tasks, especially when handled by a duo as proficient as O'Reilly and I. Stealthily, we approached the mansion. O'Reilly had been correct about the back door, its decayed state allowing us an easy entrance. Inside, a putrid stench of decay and filth hung heavy in the air. The faint glow of a distant television provided the only source of light within the house, guiding us through the dimly lit kitchen, filled with rotting food and unwashed dishes, towards the living room. As we neared, the muffled sounds of a television program and the shifting silhouette of the old woman, engrossed in her late-night television habits, became clear. However, the sudden burst of manic laughter and the sound of small feet running amuck on the upper floor disrupted our silent approach. The woman reacted to the ruckus above with hushed murmurs of disquiet and dread, moaning a name, Paul, and questioning the return of her sweet Oliver. Despite her age and frailty, she reacted with surprising vehemence when I tried to restrain her. 
In the ensuing struggle, she bit my hand, breaking free from my grasp to ramble incoherently about her son Oliver and the need for his father. Her desperate pleas were abruptly silenced by a swift shot from O'Reilly's silenced pistol, the woman falling lifelessly onto the floor. I could see disappointment in O'Reilly's eyes. How could you let her go, Taggart? She chided. She bit me, I responded, the strange circumstances of this mission leaving me disoriented. O'Reilly simply shook her head. Guess we have to check upstairs now. As we ascended, the woman's dying words echoed in my mind, hinting at a mystery that added another layer of complexity to this already challenging task. No sooner had we reached the top, when a door burst open and a small figure darted past us. The speed and force of the child, Oliver presumably, were abnormal, further intensifying the unease surrounding this peculiar job. O'Reilly unexpectedly lost her grip on the banister, her fall causing us both to tumble down the stairs. As we descended, the young boy scuttled into the living room, continuously chanting, Mommy, 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 play, play, play. The voice had an odd depth to it, something that sounded off for a child. When we collected ourselves back in the living room, mere feet away from the deceased woman, the child was already gone, replaced by the noisy clatter of pots, pans, and other kitchenware. The cacophony was accompanied by manic laughter and an endless chorus of hungry, 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 concluding with a peculiar sound of smacking lips. Something was not adding up, and I motioned to O'Reilly, asking, Do you hear that, child? Unimpressed, O'Reilly scoffed. Harrington, the only thing not right is you. This was supposed to be a simple job. Before I could respond, the pattering of tiny feet signaled the child's return to the living room. Turning around, my eyes met with a horror I had not anticipated. Before me was Oliver, but not as we knew him. Resembling a child of four or five, his pasty white skin, cracked black nails, and bloated appearance were jarring. He held a blackened, rotting apple in his hand, the source of the earlier smacking sounds. The sight of his face was worse, devoid of any features but an oversized mouth filled with square yellow teeth. His head resembled a spherical orb. O'Reilly and I froze, taken aback by the horrendous sight before us. With no clear way of perceiving what was in front of him, Oliver seemed fixated on the lifeless body of his mother. The rotten apple fell from his hand with a soft thud as he moved towards the woman's body. Mommy, he uttered, his earlier exuberance replaced with an unexpected meekness. O'Reilly, ever the professional, snapped out of the shock and returned to her duty. In a swift motion, she took her shot, causing Oliver's head to snap backward in a burst of dark fluid. The impact sent him crashing into the living room wall. I snapped back to reality, realizing the gravity of our situation. We gotta get out of here, I said. Now, we're going to the car. O'Reilly, still scowling, responded, What the hell did Mortis get us into? I shook my head. I don't know, but we did what we were supposed to do, right? I wasn't certain that Oliver was dead, and my fears were confirmed when a guttural roar erupted from the corner of the room. Oliver lunged at O'Reilly in a fit of rage. She tried to shoot him again, but her efforts were in vain. Oliver tackled O'Reilly, clawing at her chest with a horrific intensity, reminiscent of a chef shredding pork. Amidst the scent of copper and the echoing screams, I tried to help my partner. I grabbed Oliver's clammy arm and aimed my gun at the back of his head, but he was quicker and in an instant, he turned and bit my hand, tearing off my thumb and index finger in a torrent of blood. 
My shot missed, and I crumpled to the floor, writhing in pain, as Oliver turned his attention back to O'Reilly. Oliver was met with a point-blank shot from O'Reilly's pistol, a desperate attempt made in her last moments of consciousness. As she convulsed, Oliver collapsed onto the floor, dark fluid seeping from his wounded head. As I tried to create a tourniquet from my torn glove for my bloodied hand, I could hear O'Reilly's shaky, gurgling breaths. Approaching O'Reilly, I found her chest cavity exposed. The damage inflicted by Oliver was extensive. Her entire torso was akin to wet ground meat, her blonde hair and glasses stained and scattered. As we locked eyes, time seemed to extend. Raising my gun, I gave O'Reilly a merciful end. It was the least I could do considering the ordeal. I placed my boot on Oliver's bleeding head, a precaution should he stir. I reached into O'Reilly's bloody blazer pocket and retrieved her cell phone. After every job, O'Reilly would receive a call. This job, easy on paper, shouldn't have been an exception. As anticipated, the phone rang, an unfamiliar voice asking if it was done. Mortis, I replied tersely, demanding to speak to our boss. The line went dead, but after a few anxious moments, it rang again. The commanding voice of Mortis filled the line, taken aback that O'Reilly wasn't the one answering. He seemed to be in shock when I informed him about the job, its deviation from what was initially planned. After a moment of silence, Mortis began to speak. He explained how some things in life are too complicated to discuss. When an old flame starts to harass you about a child that's been dead for decades, you have to put an end to it. Despite knowing she was lying, Mortis had to send his best man on the job. He paused before asking to speak with Lara, not realizing that O'Reilly didn't make it. There was a hint of genuine sadness in his voice as he thanked me for the job done, promising that a cleanup crew would arrive soon. Despite his twisted logic, I understood him, recalling the name the old woman repeated. Paul, Paul Mortis. In our line of work, knowledge can be as dangerous as ignorance. That night, however, it was clear that our trust in Mortis was misplaced. Looking at O'Reilly's lifeless eyes, I realized we were nothing more than sacrificial lambs to him. Just as predicted, Oliver began to stir beneath my foot. He let out a pained groan, dark fluid leaking from his head. I knew who Paul Mortis was, where he lived, and his frequented clubs. I figured I'd find him at one of those places. Speaking to Oliver, I remembered that he was once human, a boy thrown into a well by his father or mother. I looked at him and asked, Hey Oliver, want to see your dad? <laughs>